0: And welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society. So today is expected to be the last day of COP28. I'm therefore really delighted to be joined by Sir Jonathan Porritt to try and make sense of the crazy climate circus we have seen over the last few weeks, or should I say the last 50 years, and the critical communications issues it presents. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us. Hi. So Jonathan is one of the longest serving climate figures. He was formerly director of Friends of the Earth, co-chair of the Green Party, chairman of the UK Sustainable Development Commission and co-founder of the Prince of Wales's Business and Sustainability Program. He also co-founded Forum for the Future to foster better collaboration between the private and public sectors with civil society, and has written numerous books, the most recent of which is Hope in Hell. Jonathan is even liked by Nigel Farage, which I think is amazing. (laughs) Even (laughs) Nigel Farage talked well of you on Talking Pints on an interview that I saw, which is remarkable, I think. (laughs) Well done. I don't know how you pulled that one off. Mm. Anyway, so Jonathan, let's get into it. Obviously, we are on the last day of COP. We think we're on the last day of COP. What do you think of the last two weeks and what do you think of the expected outcome?
1: Honestly, Frankie. (laughs) (laughs) In a way, I'm really glad that we haven't got an outcome, a firm outcome for us to refer to right now, because I suspect it would have been very depressing. And at least there's a possibility that something might be pulled out of the hat at the last minute. You never know. But honestly, the circus that is these COP processes, these big, big conferences at the end of a year, it's got to the point now where I think everybody is beginning to say this really can't deliver what we need. And I think the principal reason for that is COP28 in Dubai, we saw corruption in plain sight. The whole thing, frankly, had been taken over, co-opted by big oil and gas companies. And there's no way we're going to get to the kind of agreement we need to address the climate emergency with big oil in control.
0: And was that a tactical move, do you think, to put it?
1: It was, apparently. It was. it, It was, yes, yes.
0: And potentially has backfired.
1: Well, we don't know, because obviously something may be pulled out of that proverbial hat right at the last moment. That is something that often happens with cops of this kind. But I think the damage will be lasting because the influence of these petrostates and the two and a half thousand oil and gas lobbyists. I think people were just astonished to see that there was no sense of we're gonna to have to do things differently. There was a sense from all of them that we still need to go on developing oil and gas for as long as we possibly can until such time as new technology comes to our rescue. Incredible.
0: Really incredible. And I suppose one of the biggest messages this year is all around wanting to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And that was obviously one of the big messages at COP26. I thought it had died in COP27, but it's still very much alive as a message, whether it's an outcome or not, in COP28. Going past 1.5 degrees, which is a critical planetary boundary means that global ice sheets will cause massive flooding around the world, including in our major coastal capital cities. Our coral reefs will die and over 2 billion people will be pushed into extreme heat. The knock-on effect of all of these tipping points will cause food and water shortages around the world, mass migration, civil unrest and geopolitical risk. So it's a pretty big issue. There is much discussion, especially within the climate movement, about whether 1.5 is even alive and whether it's all just, you know, a bit of a message to try and pretend to the world that we can still deal with the climate tipping points that we have ahead of us. What's your view, Jonathan? Is 1.5 still alive? Is it a credible message?
1: I think the prospects of us restricting the average temperature increase to 1.5 or less than 1.5 by the end of this century, the prospects of that are zero. I mean, literally zero. And that's not just because we've already seen some days, weeks and months exceed 1.5 during 2023, because those could be just anomalies in the system. You've got to take the average over an extended period of time. But it's the fact that people never take into account the inertia in these planetary systems, the way heat builds up in the oceans, the way CO2 accumulates in the atmosphere. So from a science perspective, I think the prospects of staying below 1.5 are zero. It is interesting though, frankly, from a communications perspective, because a lot of people agree with that, but they say, whoa, you can't go out there and say that. Because if you go and tell people that 1.5 degrees centigrade is not alive, it is stone dead then nobody will be able to cope with that. And the whole consensus around which action to act against climate change has been based, that consensus will disappear. And there are lots of people who are stuck in that place who still think we must hold on to 1.5 grimly, even if the science tells us it's a dead climate duck.
0: Well, I mean, at what point do we call this then? Because we're supposed to reduce emissions by 44% in the next six years. We know that those emissions are going to go up by 9%, not go down yeah. by 44 So within the next six years, we're going to have to admit that one5 is probably off the table, right? And it's weird, isn't it? Because we've got a situation where we've got no political leaders, we've got no global leaders really standing up and explaining where we are and what this means. So when do we call this and how do we call
1: this? It is a bit of a conundrum. You're right. I mean, we do have some wonderful global leaders who are spelling this out, but they're all in rather odd positions. So one is the King of England, for instance, which is a difficult position to have to play this line from. The other is the Pope, which, again, you might say, well, that's a bit odd. Then you've got ex-politicians like Al Gore, who has been absolutely brilliant in terms of spelling out what this means, and António Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, who again has been brilliant. But as in serving politicians, people who hold the reins of power today, not one of them has indicated the slightest interest in explaining to people where we are in this unfolding climate emergency. And that's one of the biggest challenges, frankly, from a communications point of view, because if you haven't got your politicians out there doing this stuff, Helping people get their heads around it, explaining some of the core concepts, being a bit of a bridge to the science and then to the behaviour change. It's very hard for people to know where we are at the moment. It really is. In fact, it's almost impossible.
0: Well, it's sort of the blind leading the blind, really, isn't it? If the politicians aren't saying it and the public don't really understand what it means, then we just keep going round in circles, don't we, until you know we reach a situation where it's just clearly we've gone past the point, by which point it's no doubt too late. So if we know the politicians aren't doing it who needs to do it there's lots of people that will be listening to this podcast who will be corporate communications professionals who will be head of sustainability programs they'll be running employee engagement programs talking to their people about where we are if I think, what, three years ago, when we were in the run-up to COP26, it was 1.5, we can do this, the race to <laughs> zero is on, let's go, go, go. Like, what is the credibility of a message? And, and can a CEO now credibly stand up in front of their people and say, we are going to do this? Because the walk and the talk and the credibility and, and that trust between a CEO and its employees is possibly worth more than possibly between politicians and citizens right now. What do they do? And what does that corporate comms you know professional? How do they navigate which side they go with this?
1: Yeah, uncomfortable, frankly. Yeah. Very uncomfortable for them. A CEO can legitimately stand up with the employees in that company and all their stakeholders and say, we will do what we can do to contribute to the 1.5 degrees centigrade target, to making sure we stay below that. But no CEO with any integrity whatsoever could stand up and say you know what we're still on track for this governments the world at large is still on track for 1.5 and they'd be very ill-advised to do that because they'd be throwing in their lot then with essentially a a communication scam which is coming from government that we are doing enough to stay below 1.5 and it's just simply not true so it is a tricky call for CEOs I think that One of the problems we face, Frankie, is there are not many CEOs who actually understand the science of this. I'm sorry, I don't really want to be rude about this, but Forum for the Future has been working with the corporate sector for the last 30 years. And honestly, most CEOs think they employ very well paid people to dig down deep into the science of climate change and tell them what they need to know, but no more than what they need to know because they really don't want them to spend an awful lot of time having to find out for themselves just how close to the edge of the abyss we really are. So we have a cohort of CEOs, even in the world's most progressive companies, who are in large part pretty damn ignorant. And what it means is that they're not pressing any panic buttons with their shareholders. They're not saying, you know what, this is a completely unviable business model we've got. They're doing what they can do within the rules of the current system, but they're certainly not pushing out any further than that. Even the best of the companies that we know are not doing any more than that.
0: So we've seen, obviously, CEOs like Paul Polman. We've seen Patagonia leading the way. But they are, as you say, few and far between and it sort of leads me this question you know I'm caught up in a lot of these conversations if government's not going to do it business is going to do it and if business is not going to do it who's going to do it right and you know if you listening to the recent podcast from Christiana Figueres, who obviously was the architect of the Paris treaty she said I'm not sure that government's going to do it it's going to come down to business in the markets is it going to come down to business in the markets if most of the CEOs really aren't there
1: no, it no. Isn't. <laughs> I love Christiana dearly. She's been an absolutely formidable champion of change in this space and did an extraordinary job in Paris in 2015. But the idea that we can now avert our eyes from the dysfunctionality of politicians and look to the inspiring leadership of business instead, that is honestly the height of naivety. And there are just so many reasons why it can't work. Businesses don't make the rules of this particular market game that we're all playing. They don't fashion the shape of capitalism today. Only governments can do that through direct mandates to international institutions, corporate law, and so on and so forth. It is, I think, a dangerous illusion to tell people that progressive Business now can step up into this vacuum and make stuff happen, even if the governments are not there making it happen with them in partnership with them. Governments have to regulate this into being they have to set the incentives they have to set the price signals they have to formulate the right kind of carbon tax they have to get the right standards for the way we build infrastructure and building. This is all government stuff, and every time someone tells me this is going to be done by businesses acting voluntarily without any formal legal mandate i think to myself you haven't spent enough time working with business because it doesn't work like that
0: it's very odd isn't it because that was definitely where we were a couple of years ago with obviously larry fink's letter here's esg business is going to do it we're going to lead the way and two years later we won't even mention esg and it's now part of the woke agenda and now seems to be an incredibly dangerous platform. So. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of- it's exposed itself so if we are where we are I mean it's feeling a bit bleak isn't it Jonathan I mean where are we going to go now and thinking very much about our listeners from a communications perspective these conversations they're happening in a bubble aren't they they're not happening in mainstream media they're not happening on mainstream television there isn't really anybody you know citizens of the world are not kind of sitting there going oh well cop's not working out this year is it what are we going to do (laughs) Um, How are we going to solve these issues and how are we going to drive some accountability, especially at a government level, to create political will? You know, who is going to be responsible? What do we need to do in the media? What do the NGOs need to do? You know, is it the job for the activists? Where are we? So if we're looking specifically at the media at the moment, there's a lot of complaint about media reporting. Do you think that's the media's fault or do you think that's the communications industry's fault for not delivering the right messages to them?
1: I think one of the deepest misfortunes for humankind in wrestling with the climate crisis at this particular time is that we're all victims of the way in which so much of the media have been taken over by right-wing interests whose minds are solely focused on the elite 1% of human beings on this planet, focus very tightly on enhancing the interests of the already rich and making sure that nothing gets in the way of their ability to go and making themselves even richer, however obscene that may be to normal human beings, who I assume will be the ones listening to a podcast like this. I doubt that any of the 1% are. It's just wretched because that stranglehold that this ideologically driven set of media powers in the world today, very, very powerful incumbent media forces, act as a block on so much else actually happening across the media as a whole. And of course, they can take advantage of the vacillation of our politicians because it's not as if the politicians are actually trying to go out there and explain stuff to readers, listeners, people on programmes, whatever it might be, they're not showing that level of committed engagement. So for the media, that's just playing into their hands. They can just go on exercising their right to be duplicitous in the way they talk about climate change, to try and reduce the credibility of climate campaigners to lie about the science, which they do day in, day out, week in, week out. They lie about the science. It's something I reflect on a lot because... Maybe this is too nostalgic, but what would have happened if we actually had well informed, responsible, reasonably dispassionate media coverage of everything that's been going on in the climate over the last five years? It would look very different, frankly, from the way it looks now. It really would.
0: Well, I suppose it is a war that's being conducted in the media and through the use of technology where, you know, the fossil fuel lobby and their millions of dollars have got a stranglehold and a partnership with those right-wing owned media companies, right?
1: Yep, I'm afraid that's the reality.
0: And it's an invisible infrastructure that so few people realise they're caught up in. And there are some very, very dangerous and untrue messages about net zero making us cold and poor and all of those sorts of things that we know those populist media are using. But I suppose on the flip side of that, if we're thinking about broadcast media, if we think about the BBC, we're thinking about Channel 4, how do you feel about their reporting on these issues?
1: It's easy to be occasionally critical of what the BBC has done on climate change. It did insist for about a decade that every time it put up a climate scientist, it had to put up some godforsaken climate denialist. Nigel Lawson springs instantly to mind. But once the BBC were out of that really dark period where balance meant, yep, we've got one bona fide science and we've got one ideologically driven idiot, there's balance for you, that's really good. Once they were out of that, the BBC has been really solid on this. I have to say, really solid. So is Channel 4. They've been doing a lot recently, and they've clearly decided this is going to be very much part of their public broadcasting remit to help more people understand the nature of the challenge. And then you've got parts of the print media that do a really good job. I have to mention The Guardian here. Sorry, I know that'll just confirm stereotypes. Oh, my God, Jonathan Porritt reads The Guardian. Who would have (laughs) thought? But honestly, The Guardian does do an amazing job. So it's not that we're in a a total desert here. And it is possible to find really good coverage of this. And a lot of it is available. But you have to kind of make an effort. I'm a devoted reader of the new scientist. I'm not a scientist. But for me, when I want to find out what's really going on, I need the authority of people who can interpret science for me as a non-scientist. So I know I'm taking an extra effort in that so that I'm better informed than I would be otherwise.
0: But if you think about the average person sat on their sofa last night watching the 10 o'clock news, learning that, you know, there's an outrage about this text, probably didn't really understood what it means. And we're going to go past 1.5. What did ITV do last night? They went and interviewed. I understand why they're going to interview the the heads of small island states that are potentially going to go underwater. But again, psychological distance, 1.5. or well, that means things are going to happen in faraway lands. Yeah. It's not telling people in Britain 1.5 degrees means food and water shortages, mass migration, civil unrest, that is going to be at the door of us, not just the door of people who are in the global south. Why are these messages not permeating? Is it the NGOs? Is it the UN? Is it WWF? You know, obviously can't point fingers. Everybody's working really, really hard. But where's the brief? Where's the comms brief? And who's going to land this?
1: Well, there is no one brief for this as we know and people will continue to argue about how to get the balance right between sharing the physical reality of what is happening so that's just the empirical data coming back to us from all around the world showing what is all happening in nature now nothing to do with computer modelling, what's actually happening in nature now. And there's a kind of big tussle between those who think, well, if you share too much of that, it'll just disempower people. And they won't listen because they've got no point of traction to address things as big as that. You know, if you tell them that sea levels are going to rise by somewhere between 12 and 20 metres by the end of this century if we exceed that 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold. What do you do? There really is nowhere to go once you hear that. So I understand why a lot of people who have thought through the communication side of this very carefully say you can't immerse people too deeply in this very depressing set of statistics about physical reality. But I push back on that because I say if people don't actually know, the reality of what is going on. How can they possibly get excited about all the things we need to do to stop that reality getting any worse? You can only do what you need to be doing in your own life to get involved in the campaigns that you ought to be involved in, to share these ideas and insights with family, friends, business colleagues, work colleagues, etc. You can only do that effectively if you know what is going. On. Yeah, it takes yeah, us right yeah. back to the start of Extinction Rebellion in 2019. What was the first thing they said? Tell the truth. If our communications are not based on truth, trust me, they won't be effective in the long run.
0: But do you think with that there's a sort of sense that I found is that there's sort of not wanting to scare people means that actually we don't talk to people as adults. Exactly. You know, it's a bit like with COVID, wasn't it? With COVID, when people went, the government sort of behaved a bit like, oh. Oh, well, that was a surprise, wasn't it? We sort of, we told them that there was a problem and, and we told them what we needed to do and everybody sort of did it. Wow. <laughs> and there's a sort of, I don't know if it's a, a sort, of, sort of privileged view, but we should be speaking to people as adults. They're not stupid. We need to explain exactly what's going on and what is ahead. But alongside that, and I think the absolute frustration I feel in this space is that, you've got to be able to tell both stories it's this bad but it could be this good if we do the following things and i haven't found anywhere that i can see the duality of those two messages and stories coming together that go further than maybe ed meliband and caroline Lucas on the news saying oh we can solve the cost of living crisis and climate together and people don't get it they don't understand how we're going to reform our economy. They don't understand how we're going to reform our food systems. They don't understand how we're going to lift people out of poverty, essentially because Article 12 of the Paris Treaty was supposed to educate and empower the public and invite them into consulting policy. If no government is going to educate and really enable people to understand really how we're going to change the world so we're going to address these issues, how are we going to close that gap? Because I don't believe we can simply do it through some headlines and a couple of minutes on the news.
1: No, I agree entirely. But the reality, Frankie, is that it's in politicians' interests to keep people in a state of relative uncertainty or ignorance about all of this, which is why I was actually intrigued to hear last week that Extinction Rebellion, which, when they launched, had an idea for a citizen's assembly. It was going to be one big citizen's assembly, and it would come up with a blueprint for transforming Britain and making us the exemplar of low-carbon prosperity for the world. And it was very ill-thought through as a proposal. And because they didn't do that very well... They kind of gave up on it after a while, although there was one very good national climate commission looking at this from a citizen's point of view. But last week they announced that what they're going to try and do now is get citizens' assemblies going all around the country. So everywhere, in every town, every village, an opportunity for people to come together and actually begin to think about what this means for them, their communities, their families, their children, all that kind of stuff, with some expert input. So there'll be opportunities to hear the state of play as it is today. And I know that sounds very slow because that's not going to happen overnight. That could be a five-year journey to get even, I don't know, five million people involved in citizens' assemblies of that kind. But we have to start now from the bottom up because top-down is not interested in helping inform people in the way they need to be informed.
0: They're so thinking about businesses as well and what they need to do now some businesses who are going to be thinking we're not going to make 2030 you know what is it that we're going to do to actually use our power to also drive that political will yes. There what be FTSE 100 businesses who, who can read the signs and they damn well know that their businesses are not going to be there unless they solve some of these problems what can they do do they need to be collaborating better do they need to be using their collective lobbying power do they need to be i mean you see the kind of letters don't you oh x number of ceos have got together and signed another letter, and here today and gone tomorrow and all the rest of it but like what is going to make the difference how can business have power
1: those collective sign-up mechanisms are important i mean genuinely we mean business and you mentioned race to zero and um, business declares and all the rest of it they matter, they give people a sense of shared purpose in the business community which is really important and it means that they can't be picked off as usual suspects which the Daily Mail and others would like to do, so there is strength in numbers in that regard but I honestly, Frankie, if you wanted my truthful answer to that question, business are going to have to do three things that they are totally reluctant to do at the moment one is call out big oil and just say these companies now have gone rogue, their single-minded pursuit of increased profit for their shareholders is going to destroy life on earth. And it's going to destroy our ability as a company in another sector to generate the dividends that we want to generate for our shareholders. So they are working against every single other source of good capitalist returns because of this approach that they have. They need to do that. Secondly, they need to... Inform shareholders about just how serious this is. There are a lot of very muddled, very ignorant, very stupid, rich institutions and individuals out there putting their money into the kind of things that will destroy value for them over time. So businesses do have a role, working with shareholders, helping them understand what's going on. And then thirdly, and this is the bit that has to be spelled out, every business has to say, we can't do this by voluntary means. We need to be mandated. So classic example, frankly, just one clear example. There's a big discussion going on about the Global Plastics Treaty at the moment. One of the big areas of debate is should the agreements in the treaty be voluntary or should they be mandatory, Mm. as in governments saying this is the required level of reduction of plastic or recycling of plastic, whatever the targets might be. And every single company in the world, whatever, is going to have to abide by that mandate. Now, any company that still supports doing something like controlling the scourge of global plastic by voluntary means, you know that company is willfully ignoring physical reality and preferencing the interests of their shareholders against the whole of humankind. So for me, as we head into the final negotiations next year about the global plastics treaty i will be calling out every single company that says we can do this voluntarily we can't it's going to have to require a global mandate
0: so thinking about those sustainability people that are working in-house it's not easy is it and i think it's getting the crunch is getting harder and harder and harder isn't it because you know where we were three years ago to where we are now to where we'll be at 2030 How can an in-house head of sustainability create change internally as well, do you think, with their CEO?
1: I do think that those CSOs, Chief Sustainability Officers, have a critical role in terms of spreading the responsibility for this, involving younger staff in particular, making sure there is widespread support for what companies are proposing to do across the whole organisation, not allowing themselves to be cast as the little Specialist niche in the middle of the company, so nobody else need bother about it. They need to do all of that. They need to speak truth to power and persuade their bosses and the executives and the boards that this is something where companies ought to be much more proactive. But it is a difficult role to play. A difficult role. Again, just one example. So there are a lot of companies that I've been working with for a long time. I'm obviously not going to mention which company I'm talking about here for reasons that will become apparent. But as part of their attempt to get on top of their carbon footprint, they did a fantastically detailed, authoritative analysis of just how much their business was being subsidized by not having to pay the real price for every ton of CO2 they caused to be emitted. And they did a really seriously good job on it. When the figure eventually emerged, had they had to pay that, it would have made a massive dent in their profits for three years in a row. And that work was supported by two brilliant chief sustainability officers, one CSO and one climate expert. And, of course, they said to the <laughs> the executive, they said, you know, this would help everybody understand that most of the profits that businesses make at the moment are not really profits because we're being subsidised by dumping all this CO2 into the atmosphere at the expense of all future generations, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. So why don't we tell our shareholders that we're not really profitable, or not as profitable as they think we are because we're not declaring the true cost of our externalised greenhouse gas emissions? Well, you can imagine what the executive team said to that, thank you very much. And there is another very good job opportunity coming up for you somewhere else in the world, but it ain't here. And it's hard. I'm only saying this out of sympathy with CSOs, because they really do sometimes find themselves in very difficult moral circumstances.
0: So, Jonathan, in in amongst all of this, where is your hope in this hell (laughs) that we're definitely in?
1: (laughs) It's odd. I mean, I know that we've still got the time to do what we need to do. That, with that, If I didn't think that, I wouldn't be talking about hope at all. Even though hope is quite difficult at the moment, I think it's still available as long as we're honest with each other, committed to much more radical change than is the case with most people. I think hope is still honest and a legitimate part of our emotional response um, as citizens to this climate crisis. So I still think that's the case. But I also know in an odd kind of way that there's a cliche, things are going to get worse before they get better. Well, in the world of climate, things are going to have to get very much worse, very much faster than anybody would imagine.
0: What do you mean by that, Jonathan? Do you mean the the physical impacts that we can see? Yes, the physical
1: impacts of climate change are going to have to get extraordinarily difficult for human beings to cope with in the next five years, With massive cost to the economy, massive dislocation to people's lives, so that at the end of that period of extreme, traumatic disruption, especially in the rich world, because the rich world doesn't much care about what's happening in the poor world, a lot of people will say, OK, if that's what the whole of the rest of humankind's future looks like, we are not going to allow this to go any further. So we are going to take on the oil and gas powers, we're going to make our politicians close them down, tell them that their days are over. We can't do this because if it's affecting us at this level now, what is that going to mean for our children, our grandchildren?
0: And therefore, only when potentially we're seeing it with our own eyes do you think yes. we're going to get the level of response that we need? Because yes. that's the problem with climate is that it's invisible. But if we see it with our own eyes, we have gone past the point of some tipping points that we are not going to be able to come back from.
1: Well, that's true. But you have to be really careful about that, Frankie, because there are tipping points and tipping points. And obviously, I don't want things to be so bad in the short term, in the way I've just been describing, that we actually do then go over these tipping points. I obviously don't want that to happen, because the point about these tipping points, we're not going to tip them back again in a foreseeable future. They will take centuries often to tip back. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, though, about making sure that people understand the gravity of the situation now so that we do what we need to do, proportionate to the scale of the risk, the risk of these systems tipping, for instance. So for me, yes, it's a very fine line. And given that, as many people have pointed out, given that we've never cooked a planet before, Drawing the line here as to exactly what is that point is pretty tricky stuff. So it's not going to work out perfectly. But I just know we're going to have to have more pain in the system, affecting more people in the rich world with their prospects for themselves as, as parents or stewards or whatever it may be, before they actually say to the politicians, enough, enough, your failure is now so problematic morally and politically and financially that you are going to have to get yourselves into a different place. And if you can't, then you're out.
0: So I think that brings us to a picture of quite an interesting five years ahead of us um, (laughs) to see where we're actually going to be at 2030. So I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today. Jonathan, it's been such an honour to have you on the show. And I'm sure our listeners have greatly appreciated listening to your incredible insights and advice. Thank you so much. So this is actually the last show of the year. So may I and the POE team also wish our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a very happy new year. We look forward to you joining us in 2024. Goodbye.